This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am interviewing Pam Jenoff about The Woman with the Blue Star. Pam is the author of several books of historical fiction, including the New York Times bestsellers The Lost Girls of Paris and The Orphan's Tale. She holds a degree in international affairs from George Washington University and a degree in history from Cambridge, and she received her JD from UPenn. Her novels are inspired by her experiences working at the Pentagon and as a diplomat for the State Department handling Holocaust issues in Poland. She lives with her husband and three children near Philadelphia, where she teaches law. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Welcome, Pam. How are you today? I'm fine. Thanks so much for having me here, Cindy. I'm really excited to have you here. Well, why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about The Woman with the Blue Star? Just give me a quick synopsis. Sure. So The Woman with the Blue Star is actually my 11th novel. And anyone who knows me knows that the majority of my books center around World War II and the Holocaust. So The Woman with the Blue Star was inspired by a true story of some Jewish people who survived World War II by living in a sewer in Poland, not just passing through it, but actually living in that sewer for more than a year. And so hearing this, I was very inspired. And I have written a story around it. And in particular, I was inspired by a true life incident where a young girl in the sewer, she looked up through the grate and she saw a girl her own age on the street buying flowers. And she was so struck by the disparity between her life and the girl's life. And her mother said to her, someday there will be flowers for you. And so my book leaps off from this incident into fiction and wonders what it would have been like if the young woman in the sewer, my character's name Sadie, and the young woman on the street, whose name is Ella, had the chance to meet and what that would have meant for both of their lives. I just could not even imagine as I was reading your book living in the sewer for one day or a week, let alone the amount of time that they did. And you brought that to life very well. Thank you. You know, I don't think they thought about it. They thought they were going day to day. It's sort of, do you remember last spring in the pandemic where everyone said two weeks to flatten the curve? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. And here we are. (laughs) No, that's a good point. But I just thought, oh, I just, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's the point. How did you come across the story in the first place? 
So I actually found it on the internet. My love of the era comes from some years I spent living in Poland and working for the State Department on Holocaust issues about 25 years ago. But the stories I write are not from that era. They, you know, they're stories that I discover or find in my research. And so what I'm looking for when I find a story is I'm looking for the gasp. I'm looking for the story that makes me go, aha. Because if I have that reaction after 25 years of working with the war, then I'm hopeful that readers will too. That makes sense. And you talk a little bit in the end in your author's note about having to sort of scrap what you had started and start over again. So were there any kernels of this story in that? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? There were. So I'm very honest. I like to keep it real. And for the first time in 11 books, I handed in my manuscript and my beloved trusted editor said, no, like this was just not the right book. Which of course, if you think of all that time, all those months and early mornings that you've put into this thing, it was a huge blow. So we we decided that I would rewrite about 95% of the book in, in roughly five months, which is fairly extreme. But the core part of the story didn't change. It was still the girl below and the girl above. What changed in that rewrite was two critical things. One, my editor felt that the story needed to spend more time in the sewer, more time developing that friendship. And secondly, my first draft only told the story from the point of view of Sadie, the girl in the sewer. And my editor felt that it needed to be Sadie and Ella, the girl on the street who told the story. Well, five months to completely redo a book, that must have been mind boggling for you on top of the pandemic, right? Because you were doing all of this as the pandemic was unfolding. About half of it. So if you imagine that I got this devastating news about rewriting the book in late 2019, so let's say November or December. So I was chugging along on these revisions and I was actually supposed to go to Poland for a research trip. But unfortunately, I booked my plane ticket for March 11th of 2020. And so, you know, the whole world shut down and I was never able to go. So I was still working on the revisions when everything shut down. You have children and a husband who I'm sure were all of a sudden all at home. And so you're trying to write and deal with homeschool and having everyone in your home all the time. Yeah, it was very abrupt. I should add that um, when I was supposed to leave for Poland on March 11th, and I didn't go, thank goodness, because I had an emergency appendectomy on March 12th. And I I would have been in the air over Europe. But the, the reason I say that is I came home from the hospital after one night. And the whole world had shut down. So I never saw my kid's last day of school. I never saw my, my, my son get off his last elementary school bus. It was this very Rip Van Winkle moment where suddenly the world had shut down and we never left the house again. So there was this great moment of shock. And then we had everybody home and we got a pandemic puppy. And I have to tell you, I didn't work for about six months. And that felt terrible. So the real change for me was in September when the kids went on virtual school. I put the puppy in daycare, which is a big thing with authors, by the way, doggy daycare. And then (laughs) uh, I started working again and it was just the most wonderful feeling. So I don't take it for granted anymore, you know? Well, that's interesting that you say that because I do think that is a silver lining for many of us for the pandemic is certain things We now appreciate a lot more than we used to. And so, you know, trying to find the positives in what was a rough year. My 15-year-old son now says, I will never take for granted going to school again. Like he used to be like, oh, I don't want to go. But now he's like, I'm happy to go. You know, I think after sitting online for 
he was for about three months in the spring and then another month in the fall. He was thrilled to pieces to actually go in person. So there oh, are yeah, some positives. Oh, they don't complain about school anymore, do they? <laughs> no. So, you know, I guess it's the same way as the working. And that's so funny on the the doggy daycare. I love that. There's like three or four authors we've had this conversation that all, all use doggy daycare. <laughs> well, what do you hope readers take away from this book? Well, you know, with all of my books, I am looking at the gray areas of in people and the individualized responses, right? What makes someone in a particular catastrophe or world situation, what makes someone help and someone stand by and someone do really awful, you know, things. And so I like to look at those individual choices and individual responsibility. But the other thing that the war brings us in particular, the war throws together people who through normal life circumstances would never have met. And I hope that when my readers see these relationships, they themselves will empathize with people who are not like themselves. Because if we can do this in reading and in fiction, I think it helps to reduce some of the otherness in our daily lives. I like that. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking about so many things I've been reading lately about the rise in anti-Semitism and how that seems to be becoming a bigger issue again. I mean, I know it's it's been an ongoing issue, but it seems like it has become a greater issue in recent times. Your book made me think a little bit about that, the same idea that you're saying, people developing relationships that they might not necessarily, and also just understanding we're all just people. And whether we have different religious beliefs or colors, skin or whatever, I mean, we're all people. Well, these are definitely lessons that we can use for our times, right? I mean, this is, uh, you know, with all the things that are going on right now that we can learn to empathize and see the other's point of view is very important. I think so too. And as I was reading your book, I just thought, well, that's really relevant for today too. Yes. Yes. It's an, it's an important, it's not ever a message I like set out to write. You know, I don't say I'm going to write a book about today's times, you know, it's just something that kind of happens organically when the book comes out at a particular moment. But I think that that's a lot of fiction. I think authors aren't saying, okay, I'm going to teach a lesson or a moral of this story or any of that. They're just writing. And those lessons then are ones that you just take from the story automatically. And those are the best books anyway. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Well, and you had to be thrilled to pieces. You jettisoned right up to the very good spot on the New York Times list immediately. That had to be fun. Well, thank you. And that is something I certainly don't take for granted. So it's interesting. I did not hit the New York Times until my ninth book. And so it was exactly 10 years to the day from the time my first book came out on March 1st, 2007 until March 1st of 17 when The Orphan's Tale hit. So this is a pretty new phenomenon for me. I'm immensely grateful um, and realize what a long shot it is. And, you know, especially I think a lot of the authors have I've talked to, it's like publishing during a pandemic is sort of like learning to walk all over again, you know? So I'm grateful, super grateful that it's worked out. I was going to ask you that. And so how different has it been getting the woman with the blue star out into the world versus your first 10 books? Well, you know, every book is different, but obviously it's harder. We can't do some of the things we normally do, like touring. I'm not back in person yet. Um, and so, we, you know, have not been able to do that sort of thing. But look at the amazing 
world that we've pivoted to online with, you know, with your podcast and all of the bookstagrammers and the influencers and all those programs like A Mighty Blaze and Friends in Fiction and First Chapter Fun. And it's really interesting because I think in some ways we had set up the infrastructure for this over the past decade as we all got to know one another online. And it's so exciting to see that take flight. I do think you're right. I think with the dawn of social media and slowly but surely some of these groups were already developing and creating a platform. And so it was a lot easier to pivot last March, though it may have taken a month or two for everybody to get going than it would have been if this had happened, obviously, 20 years ago. Yes, I I agree. And it's very exciting. And I'm very grateful to the people who are making it happen. Well, and just congratulations on the New York Times, because I know that is So exciting and great to get your book out there that way and just such an honor. Thank you. And it's funny, you know, that happens alongside real life. I always sort of chuckle about it. So, you know, I don't know if you know this, but with the New York Times, you find out on Wednesday night, like sometime around five or six o'clock, whether you're going to make the list or not. So the first time it happened, I was at karate with my kids and like putting on a karate uniform when I got the call. And then this time I was out in the muddy backyard throwing a Frisbee for the dog. So I always think about where I was at that particular moment. I love that. Who usually calls you? Your publicist, your editor? How do you usually hear? Editor or agent? Actually, so the first time it happened, it was like a group phone call. And I think my editor might have been on maternity leave that year. And then this time, I think my agent called first. And then I said, Oh, look, there's Erica, who's my editor buzzing through, you know, so they get the list. And then they let me know. I think that's kind of neat that the list comes out early. I guess it's not online at that time, right? It's just provided to the publishers. Is that correct? I think it goes online. You're, the, you're not supposed to post it when you know until 7pm on Wednesday, 7pm on Wednesday, you could probably see it on their site. Okay. I was trying to remember exactly how that worked. I don't know these things. (laughs) Yes. Well, exactly. Nor do I clearly. And the date always seems off to me. Like I'll look and it'll be like the next week or something. And I'm like, I'm so confused by exactly how all of this works. But I did know the Wednesday at 5 p.m. because I've had other author friends who have said they've kind of, you know, been waiting, but trying to keep themselves occupied. And I also, you know, publishing in May is new for me too. So I, I, I'm traditionally more of a January, February, March person. And for various reasons, I wound up in May and there's just so many good books this month. Well, that does make such a big difference. You know, what else is out there? And that's interesting. I don't think I realized that this was a shift in time for you. Yeah. Heading into summer too, you know, that always seems like there's so many books coming out. Exactly. There really is. It's an exciting time. It is. My list is large. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I think because of the pandemic too, so many books got pushed to January through April of 2021. So I felt like that was a huge reading time too. I'm hoping things will stabilize a bit. Yes. Do you have a favorite of the books you've written? That's sort of like picking between your kids, right? So Commandant's Girl was my firstborn. The Orphan's Tale was my breakout book. The Woman with the Blue Star is my new baby. The Lost Girls of Paris is probably my greatest achiever. But I have to tell you though, I have a soft spot in my heart for some of the books that haven't done as well, like some of the books you might have never heard of. So I wrote a book called Almost Home, which was a modern, suspenseful book that had a lot of me in it. I wrote a book called The Last Summer at Chelsea Beach, which was World War II, but it's on the home front in Philadelphia and Atlantic City. And that book is very personal to me. So everyone kind of different, I think. I love to hear people's answers to that question because they do often start out with it's like picking a favorite child and some authors can't really then pick, but a lot will launch into kind of what you just did. It's like picking a favorite child, but books reflect a time in your life when you write them, right? So so The Woman with the Blue Star will forever be my pandemic book. I wrote a book called The Things We Cherished, which has 
and, and another book called The Winter Guest, which both have very heavy sibling themes, like twins and in and and you know siblings. And in those books, I was writing them right as my own twins were born. And so I think a lot of a lot of what I was going through as a mother with three small children comes across in those. I think that is true. And so a lot of times you'll reflect back on a certain book and you'll think about the story in the book and writing those characters, but you'll also think about your life experiences while you were going through it or whatever it is you poured into that book. And don't you think it's like music, right? Like we all have those songs that we know were from like the summer of whatever, you know, these songs with a very strong association from our past. So I think the books I've written during those periods are kind of the same. I like that analogy. I had never really thought about it, but I am definitely that way with music. And I'm always saying to my kids when some 80s song comes on, oh, that reminds me of senior prom or that (laughs) reminds me of, you know, high school or whatever it is. So I think you're exactly right. I like that. And then they discover the song and they think it's theirs. Exactly. (laughs) And I'm like, no, no, I I knew that song already. And they're like, you know this one? I'm like, I do. What about a favorite character? I don't have a favorite character. I will tell you that I am sort of I'm sort of awkward and disheveled, at least as I see myself. So whichever character is kind of the difficult one, the awkward, the disheveled, like uh, that's who I'm going to identify with, you know, not sort of the super graceful one, if that makes any sense. And that makes sense. When, as you were writing this one, did you find it harder to write Sadie or harder to write Ella? Harder to write Ella because I didn't have Ella in the first draft. The first draft was all Sadie, you know, the girl who's Jewish, who's in the sewer. And then I have to write this girl who looks like she's doing just fine. Like she's not persecuted by the Germans. She comes from an affluent family. And so how to get inside her. And it was interesting because when you get to know Ella, her life is far from perfect. She has lost all of her family except her awful stepmother who is consorting with the Germans. Her fiance, who she thought was off fighting the war, is back and hasn't even told her that he's back. And so she's got her own kind of isolation going on. I liked that she was struggling also and how well you portrayed that it was difficult for her too. you know, living in Krakow with the Germans there and that life wasn't easy for anybody. It was obviously much harder for Sadie in the sewers and being Jewish. But Ella herself wasn't just skipping along like everything was super easy and the things that her stepmother was doing were causing her problems with her own relationships. I was glad you developed her that way. Well, you know, that's one of the things that's really important to me in my books is that I want to show all facets of life during the war. So when I wrote Commandant's Girl, there was this scene at, I think it was the symphony. And I thought, how dare I write a scene at the symphony when Auschwitz is like less than an hour away? And the answer I came back to was like, well, because there really were people going to the symphony. And so um, kind of showing all of the facets of what's happening. Well, and then trying to kind of compare those two to each other, I think makes it even a stronger story because how horrifying that these poor souls are in Auschwitz. And then at the same time, people are going to the symphony, you know, so I think in a way it, it contrasts what's happening even more. Yes, I agree. What's the best thing about being a writer? Oh, that's interesting. So the best thing thing in terms of the creative process is the early stages. So I'm a pantser, which I'm not a plotter. I write by the seat of my pants. And that means for months, I just get to throw words down in a random order. And it's very zen. Um, It's very liberating. Of course, then you have to do things with those words, which is tough. In terms of the writing life, the best thing is the connection that we've all made virtually and in person. Um, I have author friends and reader friends who I've known for a decade or more now. And it's a very special relationship to develop. It's such a good group of people. It is. 
Do you have a set schedule? I mean, I understand you're a pantser, so you haven't outlined ahead of time or kind of thought through exactly how the story is going to go. But do you have a set way that you write? I know you mentioned in your notes the 5 a.m. authors group. So do you get up every day, write for two hours, write a certain number of words, or do you just sort of write when you can? So it has changed over the years. I've always been an early morning person because when I first became a writer, I was an attorney and I had to go to work every day. And so I had to write those books from five to seven in the morning before I went to work. So in my perfect world, I will always take that first chunk of five to seven in the morning. I used to creep into my office to do it. Now I write with a puppy on my feet. But that's my favorite chunk of time. And then I'm, I'm a short burst writer. So I, you, I can't, I saw some writers say the other day, they had five hours left that day. I don't have that kind of fuel in the tank. So I like to write in short bursts. So if I had all the time in the world, I'd probably do like four short chunks a day, the early morning, the morning, and then research later in the day. I'm very disciplined in that I do try and write every single day. Uh, I don't believe in writer's block. Because when I was an attorney, if I had said I wasn't motivated to write a brief, I would have gotten fired. So I do treat it like a job, but I do think you have to be flexible in that, in where you're working, how you're working, and protect that time. Do you find that the book stays with you as you go about your day, that you're sort of ruminating over certain characters or things they're doing, or if you have gotten stuck with a plot point, that it kind of your, your mind is constantly working on it, or do you leave it? and then come back to it when it's your new time to write. There's a lot of triage in my life because I you know I write, I teach and I mom. So I'm not one of those people that's going to be like angsty and wrapped up all day in my character struggle, but certainly the moments when you're doing other things are really good times to think through like a, a plot gnarl, you know, they're really good times. I've had some of my most magical moments doing that. So I do think about things other days, other times a day, but it's not it doesn't paralyze me, you know, I'm or immobilize me. I'm I'm still going. I will say, and I just want to share this that after all these years of writing, two days earlier this week, I had a call with my editor and my agent to fix something in what I'm working on. And it was so it so revolutionized things that I had my best two writing days ever this week. And to be able to find that kind of joy at this point in my career is really, really special. That's very true because you've been doing it for a while. So for it to still be something that brings you joy and makes you happy is fabulous. Oh yeah, I, I'm feeling, I'm sitting at my desk and, and and the dog's at daycare and people are at school and it's a good moment. <laughs> well, and like you said, you're, you're really now not taking it for granted that the dog's at daycare and the kids are at school. So you're like, okay, I have this time and I'm by myself and <laughs> yay. And all, all of that could fall apart at any moment. So let's go. <laughs> exactly. Well, what are you working on right now? Can you talk a little bit about that? I can. So normally I'm very open about what I'm working on. And then I was feeling oddly squirrely about it. And then I realized I had already answered it in the reading group guide for the woman with the blue star. So my new project was inspired by a true story of the only known sabotage of a train headed for Auschwitz. And so it's about the saboteurs and it's about the people on the train. And that's what I'm playing around with right now. Ooh, that sounds like it's going to be really good. And I don't know anything about that. The aha moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's definitely a hook. Well, what about books that you would recommend that you have read recently and you really liked? So I'm reading a ton right now, and I do something called 100 Days of Books, where every day for 100 days leading up to publication, I post a book that I have loved, another author's book. It could be debut or bestseller. It could be any genre. And I just finished doing this. So I've had this wonderful 100-book Pinterest board with all of them. 
But this week, I'm excited about some new books that have come out. So last week, we had Mary Kubica's Local Woman Missing and Alyssa Friedland's uh, The Last Summer at the Golden Hotel. And then Tuesday, as you know, is a really big day because books come out Tuesday. So today we have Hannah Mary McKinnon's, I think it's called You Will Know Me. I don't want to get the title wrong. I'm really excited about a forthcoming book by Kristen Higgins, and it's called Pack Up the Moon. It was really good. And then I read a galley recently of a good forthcoming historical, one by Erica Roebuck, and I don't want to say the name. I think it's Sisters of Sand and Fog, but I could be wrong, and a galley from Megway Clayton called The Postmistress of Paris. So those are a few. I am so excited for Erica Roebuck's book. I loved The Invisible Woman. And I saw that she had done the poll about asking people to help her select the title. So I just cannot wait for that one. And I'm doing an event with Erica next week. And I'm really excited. So I was part of an anthology called Grand Central about seven years ago. And there were 10 women authors who wrote for this anthology. And we were, were all like fast friends. And so last night I was with Karen White on an event and she's one of them. And then next week I'm with Erica. So, Oh, that's great. I'll have to track that down. I don't think I've read that one before. It was so fun. And I'm interviewing Kristen Higgins in a couple of weeks, and I just got the galley for her Pack Up the Moon. I can't wait to read it. Okay, get tissues. Bring tissues. <laughs> it's, it's a tearjerker. And one of my kids, who's not yet 11, stole that galley and read it before me. Really? It up. I mean, it was perfectly appropriate, but picked up that galley, at least for my kid it was, picked up that galley and read it first. She's been doing that. She also stole uh, Jenna Blum's forthcoming Woodrow on the Bench and read that first too. Now, is that the one about her dog? It is. Bring tissues. Okay. <laughs> All these bring tissues. Well, that's why I haven't picked up Kristen Higgins yet, because I know I was like, okay, I know that's going to be a sad one. So I have to sort of put myself in the right frame of mind for that. Yeah. Jen is another great friend from Grand Central. And we have we have Labradors who are exactly the same age. So it's oh, really that's fun. very fun. Yeah, so that's, that's your pandemic puppy is a Labrador? I do. I have a one-year-old named Scoop, like Scoop of Ice Cream. And she has a one-year-old named The Professor. So we, we talk. The Professor. <laughs> I love that. Uh, So many people ended up with pandemic puppies, and I thought, I don't know that I could have handled a puppy on top of everything else. I am, like, very impressed. You can't get a vet appointment to save your life because there's so many puppies. (laughs) Well, and and we, with our vet, we have to, like, sit in the car, and then they have to come out and get them. And I already have two dogs, too, so I didn't really need another puppy. But, you know, it's a process already. So trying to throw a puppy into that would have been, I think, sent me over the edge, probably. Yes. Well, Pam, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you about the woman with the blue star. This was a blast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Pam's book can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.